I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark as we continue to go here. We are in the seventh chapter of Mark's Gospel as we'll be looking at verses 31 to 37. So Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. Brothers and sisters, and hear with me the, the reading of God's Word. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, last week we've seen that Jesus attempted to get away for a little while from these never-ending crowds that were constantly gathering around Him. He also sought to get away from his opponents who sought his demise. And so, what did we see? Jesus goes to the the outskirts of those pagan lands thinking, ah, no one here will find me. And yet we discover that even though Jesus' ministry was not directed towards the Gentiles, that the Gentiles were very familiar with Jesus and his ministry. It was here while he was in Tyre and Sidon that he was approached, we're told, by this Gentile woman. Right? And she comes pleading and begging with Jesus that He would heal her daughter of the unclean spirit that she had. She likewise cried out to the Lord to have mercy on her as well. As she is having to deal with the suffering daughter week in and week out. And then we identified her remarkable faith in seeking out Jesus. Right? Believing that He was the Messiah. We highlighted the fact that she had patient faith. As we were told in Matthew's parallel account that as she first asked Jesus, He does not even respond with a word. And yet, that doesn't stop her. She continues to ask and ask and ask until He answered her petition. And then lastly, we highlighted that this woman had humble faith. She didn't come with any pride. And she was happy to receive just the smallest bit of the grace of our Lord, knowing that just one speck of that grace was sufficient for both herself and her daughter. But now Jesus' time entire in Sidon has come to an end and now He is continuing His traveling ministry and yet we see that Jesus is very cautious about where He goes. We're told here by Mark that Jesus traveled through Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a was a gathering kind of a, a bunching of, of ten different cities. 
right? So we see that they were Gentile, mostly populated. And so Jesus is still being very cautious to evade and to avoid those who are seeking to destroy him. And yet, throughout this time, it's giving him enough time to be able to teach and talk to his disciples and to prepare them for his, his coming death. All the while, Jesus is not closing himself off to healing those who would come to him in need. And this is exactly what we see transpire in our text today. As we're told in verse 32, that a man who was deaf and who had a speech impediment was brought before Jesus and those who brought him before Jesus begged Jesus that he would just lay his hand upon this man. Right, with the implication of what? That if Jesus did, he would be healed. Now we have to ask, how would this mostly Gentile population in the Decapolis recognize who Jesus is? Well, if you remember back from Mark chapter 5, the man who had the legion, who Jesus relieved him, he permitted them to go into the pigs who went off the cliff. If you remember, Jesus sends him back and He says, Go, tell your friends, tell your family all that the Lord has done for you. Tell them of the mercy that I have had on you. And we are told that the man did just this, proclaiming in the Decapolis how much Jesus did for him. And we're told, everybody marveled. And so Jesus, we can see, again, can go nowhere without being recognized, without people coming up to Him, asking for healing. Seeking that healing in the, in the love and the compassion and the tender mercy of our Lord. And isn't this the message that we proclaim still today? Right? As we stand up here as, as a minister of the Word, we are proclaiming for people to come to the Lord. Right? Come. For He is merciful and He is compassionate. Is this not the message that you guys out there proclaim to, to family and friends, perhaps strangers on the street, co-workers? Right? You tell them about the, the mercy and the compassion of the Lord. And yet we have to ask, why then is there so few that come and seek the mercy and the compassion of the Lord? Right? Seeing time and time again, through example after example, that God's grace knows no bounds. God's grace is not stopped by any borders. It is not limited to any age group. And it's not confined. It's not, it's not stopped by any degree of difficulty that the sinner might have. Right? Christ can overcome any sinfulness of the human being. Right? There is no denying that the grace of God is found in Christ Jesus. So why do so few people, why does it seem that so little come to Him like this man begging Christ for His grace and mercy? Well, I think one reason is that there are many who admire Christ, but not many who believe in Christ. And what do I mean by this? Right? They, they admire Christ's words. They admire Christ's works. They admire His sacrifice. They admire His love that He shows. But they do not come to know them as a reality for themselves. Because although admiration is good, it is not sufficient for salvation. Admiration does not cause the sinner to see their own depravity and their own hopelessness and helplessness and cause them to run unto Christ that they might receive His grace and mercy, trusting in His perfect work. And it's in our text today that we're going to get a glimpse of this perfect work of Christ for all who would come to Him desperate for His grace. 
And so we're going to look at this encounter Jesus has with the deaf and speech-impaired man and see once again this perfect work that Christ executes on behalf of helpless man. And so we're going to do this as we customarily do under three points. And so the three points are this. First is impediments to Christ. Impediments to Christ. Point two then is healings performed by Christ. Healings performed by Christ. And our third point then will be the excellency of Christ. The excellency of Christ. So point one, the impediments to Christ. Now what's an impediment? What's an impediment? Well, it's a, it's a hindrance or it's something that obstructs us from getting to where we're trying to go or to stop us from doing something that we want to do or want to accomplish. Some of us probably hear uh, you know, great success stories of people. Right? They perhaps grew up in a rough neighborhood, one parent uh, who wasn't around because they had to work, a uh, terrible school system, not a lot of money, you know, their childhood friends perhaps dead or in jail, and yet they made it out, right? Those are all impediments to their success, right? What is the, what is the impediment that this man has today, we are told? It is a, a speech impediment, right? He had something hindering or obstructing his ability to speak or at least to speak clearly for people to understand. And I think that this man's problems give us insight into all of man's problems, doesn't it? Why, when hearing of Christ's great works and hearing of a saving, saving word, that people aren't just rushing to him, racing to him, pushing and shoving to experience the grace of Christ as we believe that they should. And it's because by nature we have an impediment akin to what this man had. Right? We have a hindrance. We have something that's blocking us, that's obstructing us from coming to Christ by faith and believing in the gospel message. And that impediment is sin. Right? Sin blinds us. It obstructs us from seeing our true identity. And it is in this man and his struggle that we see the effect of sin and what it does to the human condition, do we not? Now, in one sense, sin is not the reason that this man was deaf and mute. But on the other hand, sin was the reason that he was deaf and mute. Right? The fruit of sin in the Garden of Eden was death. It was decay. It was disease. It was depravity. It was brokenness. Had not sin entered the Garden of Eden, he wouldn't have experienced this, would he have? And so no, we aren't to say that this man's sin was the reason that he was deaf and mute. Like his sin was far greater, far worse than someone else's and so this was his punishment. But at the same time, sin was the cause of his condition. Had sin never occurred, this man would have had perfectly fine hearing and speech. But now, because of sin, look what toll it has taken on man. I mean, everyone here has the ability to hear and to speak, perhaps some better than others. But imagine if you didn't. Imagine as if I'm talking to you right now, all of a sudden your, your ears just shut up and no longer were you able to hear. Right? No longer could you hear the, the sweet words, I love you, from a spouse or a child. No longer would you be able to hear the waters crash as you go down by the lake? No more could you hear the wind whistle as you walk through the park. 
No more could you recline in your chair, close your eyes, and listen to your favorite song play. Think of what this man was deprived of. Now imagine if you could not speak. If one minute you were able to communicate with people and tell them how you are feeling and what you are thinking, and the next minute you are not. Think about how frustrating that would be, how you would feel like a a prisoner within your own body. Well, this is what this man's condition was as a result of the fall. Now, what this man suffered from is what many suffer from today, actually. Thankfully, though, we've made leaps and bounds and come a long way in order to help those who are deaf or those who have speech impediments. But we're certainly still a ways off, are we not? And I'm sure that if you gave them the option to hear or to speak, they would take it in a heartbeat. But we see... Right? We see the effects of what sin has on the body. Now just think about the effect that sin has on the soul. Think of what spiritually every single person born here on earth is deprived of spiritually. Remember, we were created for communion and for fellowship with God. Well, guess what? Because of sin, that was lost. We were unable to do the very thing that we were created for. Have fellowship with God. Worship God. What misery man is in. We are not able, naturally, to advance our spiritual condition one inch. We can't go to school and learn how to be holy and righteous and good. We can't create within ourselves a new heart. We can't teach ourselves how to pray right and how to worship right. And yet what's even worse for natural man is they don't understand the condition that they are in. Man thinks, natural man thinks that God is well pleased with them. They don't understand their sad condition. We have no idea how depraved we truly are. And if you want to have evidence of that, go around and ask any unregenerate person. They don't understand what it is they are deprived of because of their sinfulness. Man thinks himself happy. But if man understood what true happiness was, he would realize very quickly that he is miserable. Man thinks himself fulfilled, but if man understood what true fulfillment consisted of, he would feel empty. Man thinks himself wise, but if he knew where true wisdom resided, he in an instant would feel himself to be a fool. Man thinks himself good, but if he knew what true goodness was, he would immediately see himself as the very scum of the earth. See, brothers and sisters, apart from Christ, man does not understand his depravity. He does not understand his spiritual misery, nor can he apart from Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and 12, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision which is made by the flesh by hands. Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is how deprived natural man is. They are living without God in the world. They have no hope in the world. I don't care how terrible someone's physical disability is. There is no condition worse than a spiritually dead condition. Right? This is why Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to go to heaven with 
one eye, then lose your entire body in hell. Right? We can apply that to our story today, right? Better to be born deaf and mute and yet be covered in the precious blood of Christ than to be born big, beautiful, bold, perfectly healthy and yet suffer the torments of eternal punishment. And yet, sadly, brothers and sisters, I think for many, given the choice, disability your whole life in Christ or perfect health without Christ, many are going to choose the latter. Right? People are far more concerned with the physical and the body and less concerned with the spiritual and the soul. Right? They have it backwards. This is why they spend so much time on the outward, so much time, energy, effort on things that are outward. And yet, what does Paul tell us? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, For while the bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for not only the present life, but also the life to come. Spiritual exercise, regular physical exercise is good, but spiritual exercise is far better. It far exceeds this. And so any of us who are believers here today, we ought to look at this man with a disability Anyone with a disability in faith is a far greater position to be in than one who is physically healthy and yet apart from Christ. But this is why so many depart this earth without the gift of salvation because their spiritual blindness does not allow them to see their spiritual misery and see their need for Christ. They simply live their existence admiring Christ but seeing no reason to find new life in His. What we also see here, for those who do come by God's grace to Him, is that Jesus is more than capable of healing them. And this is what we see here in point number two, which is healings performed by Christ. Now this encounter that we have here is a, is a great picture. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us. Right? He, he really meets us in the, in the muck of where we are at. Right? He meets us in our sad condition so that He, by His power, can lift us up from out underneath. We also see in this picture here what great love and compassion our Lord has for His own. Right? This man is brought to Jesus and immediately Jesus does what? Does He start healing the man in front of this large crowd so that this man who can't hear or can't speak might miss out on what's going on? No, He doesn't. He wants this man to understand what he is doing. He's concerned that this man understands what he is doing. So what are we told? He takes this man away privately so that he can focus all of his attention on Christ and not be distracted, right? Jesus doesn't care about the crowd right now. He cares solely about this man. Now I want you to see the four things that Jesus does as he takes this man aside. We're told he puts his fingers in the man's ears. We're told he he spits upon his hand and touches the man's tongue. We are told he looks up to heaven and that he lets out a a great sigh. What we see here and what Jesus is doing, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus knows this man cannot hear and cannot speak. And so what does he do? He speaks to this man in his own language. He speaks to him through action and through sign language in a way that this man can understand. And so he takes his fingers, he puts them in the man's ears to tell him, your ears are going to be freed. He spits upon his hand and touches his tongue to let him know 
Your tongue will be loosed. He looks up to heaven so that this man who's looking at him can see that what is about to occur is happening through the power of God. And then he lets out this great sigh. You can imagine as the man stares at Jesus and he sees him take this deep breath in and blows this deep breath out, demonstrating to this man that this man's pain and suffering was Christ's pain and suffering. That this man's burdens that he experienced because of sin in the fall, right? Christ sympathizes with. And yet, brothers and sisters, as he stared up to heaven, as he let out this sigh, we're told he still speaks a word. He still speaks a word. It's just one word, but he says, Ephatha, which means in Aramaic, be opened. And what are we told? As soon as he speaks that word, the man's mouth is open. It's freed his ears. Now he can hear. He can speak plainly. We ought to see ourselves, brothers and sisters, in this man. We ought to see ourselves in this man because before we were renewed in Christ, like this man, we were deaf to God's Word. We have to see ourselves like this man because just as his tongue was tied, right, our tongue, like this man's, was, was bound as well. Yet it was bound to deceit and cursing. But we also have to see that just like this man, when Christ sets His love upon us, when Christ set His love upon you, just like this man who had his ears and his mouth freed, you too have your ears and your mouth free. So that now we can hear God's Word as He speaks. We can speak God's Word and do so, not in cursing, but we can use our tongue for great blessing. And yet, how does Jesus do this? Well, obviously, it's through His divine power. right? But the instrument that He used both for this man and for us is His Word. He used His Word. He spoke and it was opened. His action was accompanied by a Word. For each of us, when Christ worked His supernatural grace in our life, when He worked the divine power in changing our hearts, it always was accompanied by the Word. Right? This is why the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper mean nothing if they aren't accompanied with the Word. And so Christ, being gracious, as I pointed out, speaks to this man in a language that he can understand that was sign language. And yet, guess what, brothers and sisters? We can be happy and glad that the Lord speaks to us in the same way. He speaks to us in a way that we can understand. We had... He speaks to us through what's called accommodation. Right? Accommodation. We can't possibly understand the language of the infinite God. Right? And yet, how are we then supposed to understand salvation? What it entails? What our problem is? Who we must look to? What we must believe? And so God, what does He do? He gives us His Word, His spoken Word, in a way that we can understand so that we can know who He is and have fellowship with Him. In Richard Muller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, he says this about accommodation. The Reformers and their scholastic followers all recognized that God must in some way condescend or accommodate Himself to human ways of knowing in order to reveal Himself. This accommodation occurs specifically in the use of 
Human words are concepts for the communication of the law and the gospel. But it in no way implies the loss of truth or the lessening of spiritual authority. The accommodation or the condescension refers to the manner or the mode of revelation. The gift, this is the gift of the wisdom of the infinite God in finite form. Right? What grace and mercy God shows to us, doesn't He? What grace and mercy that He shows to us. That not only does He make for us a way of escape by sending His Son into the world, but then He also tells us, reveals to us how we must escape through Christ. Right? It wouldn't be helpful if He made a way of escape and never told us how we are to escape. And so our Lord stoops down to us, so to speak. And He speaks to us in our human and our finite language. Now there's a second thing I want us to see, the last point in, underneath point two, and that's the, the partial fulfillment of God's prophetic word. In Isaiah 35, uh, He is at this moment describing um, gospel times. And he says to the Israelites that there's going to come a day when they will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of God. And he says in verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Right? Isn't this exactly what we see Christ has done? Right? Christ has come to open the ears and to free the tongue. And yet this is only a partial fulfillment, is it not? Right? We only hear God's Word, not perfectly, but partially. Right? We only speak God's Word, not perfectly, but partially. And so what does that mean? That ought to cause us to look forward in great expectation and anticipation for the Lord's return, where no longer will we hear or speak partially, but we'll hear and we'll speak perfectly. This then leads us to our third and final point this morning, which is the excellency of Christ. The excellency of Christ. Look with me, brothers and sisters, at verses 36 and 37. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more He charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. See, Jesus charges them to say nothing. And yet they disobey. And yet this is a problem that we, that we all suffer from, I think, all too often, do we not? Now what are we told? We're told that they were astonished beyond measure. This was their problem. They were astonished beyond measure. Right? They marveled at the miracle. Right? They were astonished by the healing. So much so, beyond measure, that they did not hear God's Word. And this is occurring all the time. So let me give you one example of this that I think is, is prevalent today, right? where we see this occurring. Uh, we see this problem occurring a lot lately in the, in the rise of the female pastor, don't we? Right? Women can have a great gift of speaking, can't they? Perhaps they know Greek and Hebrew. Perhaps they know the Scriptures very well. And so what do they say? Wow! Look at this gift that the Lord has given me. Of course He wants me to lead a church. Of course He wants me to preach unto the multitudes. And yet they are so amazed by the gift, they forget, just like these men, to hear the Word. As Paul spoke crystal clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. 
But what we see is they were, they were so, they're so amazed by what they see that they forget to listen to what they hear. And so what happens today? Right? You live out your existence in sin. Now it's understandable that when a, a great miracle occurs that you'd want to run and tell people about it, isn't it? Right? Especially if you see a miracle like this. If you were the man who all of a sudden had your, your ears freed and your, and your tongue loosened, that you'd want to tell people about it. That if you were there that day and you've seen this great transformation, that you'd want to tell people about it. And so what is it that they went around saying? We're told in verse 37, they said, Jesus does all things well. Now this is a right statement. I'm not sure that they rightly understood the statement they were making. Because had they have understood it, they would not have disobeyed the Lord. They truly believed and knew what it means to say that He does all things well. Now this word well also means rightly or correctly. Right? So they were saying Jesus does all things well. When they're saying that, what they're saying, what they're highlighting is the excellency of Christ. Right? They are saying everything He does is right. Everything He says is true. Every action pure. Every word correct. Jesus is perfect in every way. That is what that statement means. He does all things well. As we think about the excellency of Christ this morning, right, we can think about the, the fact that He was perfectly obedient to the law, fulfilling all righteousness. We can think about in His life how He exercised perfect humility and submission to the will of His Father. We can look back and think about the ways in which He perfectly demonstrated justice and mercy in His life. We can look back and see how He demonstrated perfect love to His Father right, in glorifying Him throughout His life. We can look to Him and see how He perfectly loved His neighbor in offering up Himself as a sacrifice for their sins. Even now, as He sits at the right hand of, of God, He does all things well as He intercedes perfectly on our behalf. And He will continue to do all things well as He returns at the correct and perfect time to bring us home with Him. Each one of us, as you sit here today, I'm certain, can attest to the fact that He does all things well as you think back to your own conversion. He converted you at the perfect time. He has perfectly taken care of every one of you. He has perfectly supplied your every need. He is perfectly there to comfort you and to hear you and to answer your prayers. Right, which one of us could lay a, a, a complaint before the feet of Christ? None of us could. And why is that? Because He does all things well. How can we, who struggle to do just one thing well, look up to heaven and complain to the One who does all things well? Instead, when we learn about it, as we understand and we think about it, the excellency of Christ, what it ought to cause us all to do is to stare up to heaven with our mouth open wide, jaw hitting the floor as we stand in awe beholding the excellency of Christ, understanding that it is Him who does all things well, who is holding us up in this world. And what encouragement it ought to bring our hearts knowing that the One who does all things well right, will bring, bring our salvation to completion. Right? The One who does all things well will make sure to keep us and preserve us until the end.
And this is because He does all things well. He must do this. He can do no other. And so it ought to encourage our hearts, brothers and sisters, right, that our salvation does not depend on us who fail, but rather it ought to cause us to have great encouragement and hope that it is because of Christ, the one who does not fail, that our salvation depends. And it continues to depend until He returns on Him who is the one who does all things well. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word this morning. How You have revealed Yourself to babes. How You have made Your Word understandable uh, to Your children so that we might know You and have fellowship with You. We are so thankful for this grace and mercy You have given unto us. We pray, Father, that You would continue today and each day going forward, reveal to Your people more and more about how You do all things well, that we might think about and contemplate and meditate upon the excellency of Christ. And so, Father, we come before You asking all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.